this episode of China Unscripted. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is hiding something big. The Chinese Communist Party celebrates 100 years of lies and why America's elite support the Chinese Communist Party. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesha. And this podcast is sponsored by Daily Peanut. The news can be a tough pill to swallow, especially the news you're about to hear. But that's why you'll love Daily Peanut, which gives you the news each day in small doses. Part humor, part substance. And joining us today is Jack Posobiec, senior editor of Human Events, and uh, according to your Twitter handle, communism disrespector. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Hey, yeah, thank you. You know, I appreciate you uh, you adding that. I, I changed my Twitter handle and the bio pretty pretty frequently. Sometimes, you know, kind of with like. If there's something going on in current events, I'll, I'll add, you know, uh, something like I was uh, test ballots poso recently to talk about the uh, the problems in the New York mayoral primary because they added all these test ballots, of course, that were uh, seeping their way into the actual count. So it was test ballot poso, there was something else poso, my pillow promo code poso, you know, <laughs> and all the different things. So uh, communism disrespect or trying that one out because, you know, a lot of people were asking me, they say, you're always talking about China, you're always talking about Antifa, you're, you know, you've got this wife from the former Soviet Union, uh, Satellite Republic, what, you know, you're, you're uh, from Poland originally, uh, your family. So like, what's, what, how do you tie it all together? And I say, I guess, well, I, it's all communism, right? So I'm a communism disrespecter. But has real communism been tried? No, never, never once, actually, as a matter of fact, it's the next one will be the real one. <laughs> Something to look forward to then. Yes, we'll, we'll all be looking forward with, with our, our red hearts emblazoned as the sun shining above Tiananmen Square Gate. That came a little too easily. I know. I was. I've been watching too many of the the hundred year anniversary, so I've been I've been drenched in uh, CCP propaganda for oh, like that, the last week or so. That stuff is so creepy. Like it really is cult like. Like when they have the hammer and sickle in gold shining down on the people. And it looks it's, like everyone's worshiping the the, the hammer flag. and sickle flag. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty weird. Oh yeah. I mean, it is. It you know, it's it's interesting because. You know, the official position of any communist party, right, or any communist country is going to be that we are officially an atheist nation. Um, but when you look at it, it's no, you've replaced your national religion with the religion of Marxist-Leninism, right? So this has become a new national religion that's taught in every school. It's taught from the highest levels of government all the way down so that, you know, everything, yeah, sure, they allow some temples to be opened and, you know, some of the like official churches here and there. But when it really comes down to it, what you're looking at is essentially a, a state religion that's being pressed by the government, which, you know, and it's so interesting because, you know, I, I try to explain to people in the West, that you know we don't have anything. They're like, well, they're a political party. <laughs> no, 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 they're you know they're they're not a political party. CCP is not like it's not like the Republican Party. And then you you know you have a committee man and you go to a meeting like once a week or something. No, no, it's not like that at all. What I find interesting is that it's become so blatant in the lead up to the hundredth anniversary stuff. Like Xi Jinping goes to these you know, holy sites, and that's the word they use for the history of the Communist Party in China. And then he talks about how going to these sites is like a process of spiritual awakening. You know, it's really interesting that they can just use all this language. But in the West, we're kind of like, oh, you know, it, like we just ignore it. Like we don't really see what they're talking about. 
Well, it's in the West, right? We, you know, we instead of the uh, we, we had been secular for so many years and now in the West, we're getting a new religion called wokeism. And uh, that is really what's being preached and instituted, though, of course, it's being fought against by, you know, like the actual like traditional Western values. Um, but the fact that, you know, what Xi Jinping is doing, it's totally different, by the way, from the early communists. Mao was never like this. Uh, by blending right mysticism and a lot of traditional spiritual beliefs with the CCP, it's actually more dynastic, right? And I, if I had to compare it to anything, I'd compare it to the dynastic uh, theory of the mandate of heaven that exists in China. And, you know, it's almost like he's tacitly saying, you know, he's saying it without saying it, that the CCP is the new dynasty and we have been given the mandate of heaven we are prosperous we are strong and this is all because heaven favors us so you see this as well in their response to covid 19 where when it first came out they said this virus is a demon from hell right and you you certainly would never hear hu jintao or jiang zemin uh, talking like that using you know these guys are technocrats you wouldn't hear them using uh spiritual references or theological references. But with Xi Jinping, he's taking that all to another level. And then, of course, he always positions himself as as the locus of all of that power and all of that energy. I mean, it really is like he's giving himself uh, the mandate of heaven has been bestowed upon him. One thing that's interesting about what you're saying about the mandate of heaven, these kinds of things, it almost seems like a, a result also of co-opting Chinese culture into it. Because I think the party has, for many decades now, tried to basically co-opt Chinese culture and say, well, you know, we are the the legacy of, you know, 5,000 years years of history, all this stuff, um, and use nationalism and, and kind of bring that into their type of socialism with Chinese characteristics. So, like, but like Chinese language and culture is full of things like Mandate of Heaven or when, you know, uh, Xi Jinping is at Tiananmen Square and he's wishing... Uh, the Communist Party to long life. He ha he uses one sui, which is the the term that you would say, you know, live ten thousand years, which is what you used to say that to the emperors. So there's a lot of this blending of Chinese culture, of um, of kind of the original communism, and Xi Jinping going back to a lot of the type of communism that you saw before um, reform and opening up, which was always there, but kind of less explicit for people looking at it from the West. Well, there's also, and I would even say that it's it's almost like directly against some of the very early Marxist kind of programs that were pushed in the different campaigns, um, like the Four Olds campaign, for example, right? So um, this was something that was, in, that was part of, you know, prior to like the, the first United Front, you know, even before the, the the Japanese invasion. And then again, you know, you see these forces kind of bubble up again during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, or excuse me, the Great Proletarian Revolution. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's this targeting of Chinese culture. So, um, you know, doing away with traditional characters, um, stylizing uh, Mandarin as really kind of being pushed across all the provinces and then you know, shutting down, you know, basically the teaching of local dialects in schools or the use of local dialects on in, in broadcast television or radio. Um, and then, you know, this idea that we have to destroy history, that we have to sever history. History is a history of imperialism. And this is, of course, what straight from Marx, right? This is this is Marx taking horror, his uh uh, I guess, as we would say in, in the Gramscian sense in the West, we would call it his critical lens, right? The critical view of, of historicity and saying that we have history is a struggle between the imperialists and the proletariat. Now, what 
she is doing right. And this kind of this is where the culture part falls in. Now they've actually reformulated the proposition. And so instead of history being uh, this this the proletariat versus the imperialists and the ruling class, now history is the Chinese people versus the outside world. And that's the only thing that's ever been going on. And that, of course, is the theme that you hear again and again and again. One of course, and of course, this is where you get uh, most most infamously or famously, it's it's what the hundred years of humiliation, right? The century of humiliation, which they talk about the opium war to the founding of the People's Republic, um, which I always find very interesting because I, you know, I, I always kind of point out, they say, well, you know, World War II, where, where, where was the CCP? And you guys were out in Yan'an. You, you were on the long march, right? You were, you were out in the provinces. It was not the CCP fighting the Japanese by and large or any of the major skirmishes, right? That was, that was Guomindang. That was Chiang Kai-shek, right? That was the nationalists. That was the Americans with the flying tigers, right? CCP was waiting and holding much of their strength in reserve so that after the war, they could then come back and take over. Keep in mind as well, that uh, the CCP, by and large, up until, I guess, the 1960s, was essentially a foreign-backed insurrectionist movement, right? This was a Soviet program under their Far East Bureau. It was, they, you had Soviet agents at that founding of the CCP in Shanghai in the 1920s uh, in that sort of garden mansion that's that's still there in Shintiandi in the French concession. Uh, it gets broken up by French police later on. And so this, you know, the way that they're looking at it is, oh, no, we're the we're the representatives of the Chinese. people. no, you, you guys were backed by the Russians early on. You were foreign backed the same way that the Japanese were foreign backed. It was the nationalists that were actually the representatives of the people founded by Sun Yat-sen. Uh, and you were the ones who used foreign power, foreign money, foreign influence, foreign materiel to grow and become stronger and then were able to take over the country after the war because you declared war on the, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the United Front, um, the defeat of Japan. But of course, you know, none, none of that gets taught, right? None of that gets uh, gets questioned in the history books. It's all the CCP defeated Japan. They pushed them out. They defeated the imperialists. And now they are the ones making China strong again, which, you know, you, and you talk about Deng Xiaoping and reform and opening up, um, you know, the, the financing for reform and open up, the financing for the beginning of China, that or beginning of new China, I guess you could say, uh, that's not coming from anywhere internal. That's FDI. That's foreign direct investment. So again, that's foreign countries who decided, or really, you know, I would say foreign financiers who have decided that there's so much opportunity for growth in China that they are the ones who come in and start bankrolling uh, so many of these new operations. And you get like quasi privatization, you get these uh, state owned or state partnership uh, JVEs, the joint ventures that are going on in China. So, you know, the, it's it's very interesting that, of course, that the way they they present things is completely divorced from what's actually going on under the hood. Yeah, the, the reality is a group of Soviet-backed communist guerrilla forces seize control of West Taiwan. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but, right, like, exactly. uh, you know, we're talking well, about... West Taiwan and Tibet and East Turkestan and... Uh, yeah, that's right. Manchuria, right. Inner Mongolia. All the places. I mean, it's interesting when you talked about the the way that they talk about the 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 World War II, because often in history books, it'll be a very passive sentence that's like, the Japanese were defeated in 1945. It's technically not a lie. That's technically not a lie, but it makes it seem like, well, you know, we defeated the Japanese, but the Japanese were defeated 
They were defeated. By someone in 1945. But what you were just talking about, Jack, was very similar to what we started talking about, the religion thing, about how they essentially hollowed out religion uh, in China and then replaced it with the Communist Party. And then they've kind of taken history, like the Chinese cultural history, uh, and kind of taken that and twisted it to become you know, the history of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a point I wanted to make. Like, we were talking about how, like, you you made the point that, like, you know, the Cultural Revolution, the, the campaign against the Four Olds, that seems like it's in conflict with what's happening right now. But the reality is, you know, communist revolutions have always used whatever tactics they can to achieve whatever their aims may be at the time. And the reality is the campaign against the Four Olds is not in conflict with the current uh, use of Chinese culture and history by Xi Jinping. It's very much tied together because when you destroy the intellectuals, when you destroy people's understanding of history, then it can be whatever you want it to be. And you see Xi Jinping using it. They can rewrite Genesis in their own Bible, right? So now it's essentially like all created by them, right? Like like the modern Did they rewrite China. Genesis? Well, no, but I mean, like in, in their own sort of communist way of looking at things, right? Like they're rewriting the history of how the PRC was established, right? Like basically, you know, as you pointed out, Jack, hiding all the things that they, you know, all the battles they intentionally missed in in World War II so that the, the Guomindang could get, you know, their uh, soldiers and leadership killed. Yeah. I couldn't imagine living in a country that is dramatically rewriting its own history. Right. And it's, so it's, you know, it's interesting. And you hear like um, Yeonmi Park when she was uh, speaking out recently talking about coming from one of those countries. And I, I had the opportunity to speak to another North Korean defector. And the one thing that he said that always stuck out for me was um, that, you know, we know what they're teaching us about the rest of the world isn't true. But at the same time, because we don't have any other access to information, we don't know what true is, right? So we know that history isn't this caricature necessarily. And we know that the rest of the world, you know, the United States is not some kind of like, um, what do they say? They always, they always play up like racial disparity in the United States. They always play up the uh, violence. It's not, it's not like a shooting gallery. Like there's, clearly it's a very strong country. It's a very successful country. So it, it can't be the way that they're talking about but we don't really know what it's like. They didn't even know what South Korea was like, right? Because they can't peer over the horizon on their own, right? They have to see everything through that lens. So I thought that was really interesting. And I think that, you know, when I just having the years I spent in China, you know, it, it seemed to me that as, as people got older, they kind of started to have that realization. But at the same time, because, you know, they're like anybody else, they're, um, uh, they get families, they got jobs, they... They want, they've got kids, so they're like, well, yeah, we know the system is the way it is, but what are we going to do about it, right? We just want what's best for our family. I think this is uh, a big failing of sort of uh, America's response to the Chinese Communist Party, that it's often viewed from the lens of competing nations rather than a fundamental ideological struggle. Yeah, so, I mean, the United States for so many years had operated under this fallacy, right? that the fall of the Soviet Union came about because uh, liberal democracy was better and that the U.S. version of this sort of secular, capitalistic, free market enterprise 
uh, system was the best. And the system of international liberalism through um, these these programs like the United Nations and the WHO, et cetera, et cetera, were going to work. And that and so it, it was almost like buying into. So in in Marxism, there's that idea of kind of the uh, historical cycle, right? You know, this this is the way that history is moving and it'll eventually turn to socialism and socially eventually turns into stateless communism, right? And so it's almost like in the West that people had, after the fall of the Soviet Union, had told themselves, well, this is the way of the world, right? This is universal, that these beliefs, these precepts are universal. And this is where you get in the late 90s, early 2000s, and specifically the response to 9-11, you get nation building, right? And then so they embark upon these nation building exercises in the Middle East. And they say, well, I mean, everybody wants to be uh, democratic and have uh, parties and have multi-party voting. And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to have these civil rights. And it's very Lockean. And it, it's all going back to all these things and trying to pose that on cultures that have you know, never had anything like that, even even started, right? Have <laughs> had no cultural norms or even cultural ties whatsoever. We're talking about the Middle East. And then so you have those same people deluding themselves into thinking that if we just, you know, the response to Tiananmen Square was to increase trade ties with the PRC. Think about that, right? In what other situation would that ever be the response, right? Because they're looking at it as, well, if we just expose them to more of our system, then they'll become more like us. Yeah, if I murdered a bunch of people, no one would be like, hey, we should give that guy more money. That'll stop him in the future. Yeah, let's let's just fund them more, right? No, it would. you would say, hey, cut those guys off. We need to do something about this. This is a problem. We would never approach uh, the Russian Communist Party like this. We've never approached the Soviet Union like this after one of their massacres. And so when it comes to that situation, you can actually see things changing in a different lens where instead, and this is something that I actually have an op-ed that's coming out pretty soon, and I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I'm trying to make a big plug for it, but it's, it's going to be up at Human Events later uh, this weekend, where I talk about how the, the C, if you look at the numbers of it, right, so the CCP is about 90, 92 million members for 1.4 billion of the population of China. And so that's, that's like it's like 1%, but it's actually like 0.6%, you know, it's less than 1%. But thinking of it in terms of the 1% is actually very useful for us because their one, they have their one percent, and in the United States and the Greater West, of course, we have our our one percent as well, right? You know, call them the, the ruling class, the elites, uh, the oligarchs. In many cases, right? When you talk about finance or Silicon Valley, um, and so when you look at this connection between their one percent, the CCP, and our one percent, which side has influenced the other? Right. Great point. You know, our one percent have not become. Uh, or our, their one percent have not become more open-minded and liberal and allowing for uh, democracy and civil rights. No, our one percent have become more authoritarian, more forceful, more demanding. And you can see this by the way. It's so amazing. So Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway, this you know, ninety-seven years old. He's you know, he's kind of known as the brains behind the operation there at Berkshire. Warren Buffett, of course, you know, the Oracle of Omaha and everything. But but really, Charlie Munger, he's very, very revered for people on Wall Street. And I wrote this whole op-ed before he goes and gives this interview with CNBC. 
And he says he's praising the CCP in their treatment of Jack Ma, the way they shut him down, the way they disappeared him, right? He said, I wish that we had, well, he catches himself. I wish we had that, well, not their whole system, but certainly the financial system of China, I wish we had here in the United States. And why the government should just be able to shut down people they don't like and stop people they don't like. And what was Jack Ma doing? He was trying to get the average Lao Baixing Chinese person more involved in banking and spread banking and a lot of these financial tools out throughout the general population in China. That's what they shut down because they didn't want that amount of financial and economic freedom being spread throughout the country. And so who do we have in the United States proposing this and promoting it and praising it? It's Charlie Munger, one of the richest people in the United States, clearly someone, a, a titan, absolute titan of Wall Street, um, you know, the closest thing you could have to a Western oligarch saying, oh my gosh, I love this system. Why can't we do that here in the United States, right? So that's when I talk about this, this marriage between their 1% and our 1%. It's been a marriage that's influenced the West. It hasn't influenced that. Yeah, I mean, it's not just Charlie Munger. You've got people like um, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who praised the way that the Chinese regime did their their massive and very brutal lockdowns during COVID. Yep. Uh, you've got people like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who's, you know, adopting uh, these kind of, I guess you'd call them uh, censorship strategies, uh, asking people to uh, potentially, you know, let them know if there's people who might be extremists. Yeah, that's just in the last two days. And can I just say how brave it is of you to be saying this in Tiananmen Square? <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually do have a, uh, uh, I've never posted it, but I have a photo of myself in Tiananmen Square from, I want to say it's 2008. And it's on the, it's it's midnight from uh, June 3rd going into June 4th. So it's just, it's just turned June 4th. So it's the night of the anniversary and, uh, and I'm standing there pretty close to the front, and it's just me flipping off Chairman Mao uh, <laughs> and his, his giant portrait over the uh, over the Tiananmen Gate. And uh, it's, I, I kind of find it. It's like one of my favorite pictures, though. Well, speaking of that, I, I think a lot of people watching might be more familiar with you as sort of an American political commentator and don't know about uh, how much you know about China. So for people watching, why don't you give a, like, a quick rundown of like how you know China? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting, right, that... Behind the scenes, I've been a China guy for going back almost 15 years now uh, to my first visit in China was 2006. So, yeah, that's 15 years. Impossible. Impossible. 2008 wasn't 15 years ago. 2006 was 15 years ago. 2006, yeah. No, that was like three or four years ago. Yeah, it's not that long. I know, right? (laughs) Tell me about it. So... It's yeah. When you when you when you want to start really start feeling old, think about how long ago 1980 was. Yeah, I, I, pretty fun, right? It's it's we're as far now from the 80s as the 90s were from the 1950s. So boom, have fun with that. So in 2006, I did my first trip to China. Um, was so interested in it. Had the opportunity to go as an undergrad. Decided I wanted to do a study abroad there. Uh, ended up doing the study abroad for my last semester of college, and then. Um, had an internship for the American Chamber of Commerce. And then one of our sort of clients at the chamber there in Shanghai 
had said, you know, hey, what are you doing after graduation? I said, I, I don't know. I was going to travel. I was going to do whatever. And, I, and they said, well, do you want a job? I said, sure, I'll have a job. So I'm wor- I ended up working for an American consulting firm there in Shanghai, right on uh, Nanjing Lu, and um, had the opportunity to travel all over China doing business with, uh, you know, kind of as a representative of American business and American firms there literally throughout the country. And then even on my own, we had the opportunity to travel to um, Tibet, to Xinjiang. When I got back, I decided that I wanted to, you know, people said, look, you know, do you want to stay working in U.S. China business? You can make a lot of money doing this consulting work. I learned the language while I was there. So I was doing intensive language courses and and uh, got really into the history, not only of the CCP, but in the, of the country itself and especially the city of Shanghai. And I said, no, I wanted I wanted to try to do something um, from a sense from an American sense. Right. And I don't think that business is the right way to do it. Um, because I was worried about the CCP and I was worried about the rise of their power, not only in Asia, but also throughout the world. And I viewed it as a threat to the United States. And so I joined the United States military, um, picked the Navy because I knew the Navy had the most most international focus. They had the most focus on China and then ended up serving for for about eight years, uh, first as an intelligence analyst and later as an intelligence officer. Um, I was a Mandarin linguist while I was in, so I uh, did multiple deployments to East Asia as part of that, working on different task forces, working on different planning groups for different things within what was at the time was called uh, PACOM, Pacific Command. Now it's called Indo-PACOM, so uh, the Indo-Pacific Command. So they wanted to kind of add uh, India into that because technically India isn't in the Pacific, right? It's Indian Ocean or Pacific Ocean. And... Um, really just learned a lot, learned so much about it. And then, you know, 2016 rolls around and that's really when my public profile started taking off within the United States in terms of just domestic politics. But I really viewed so many of the forces and the pressures of domestic American politics, you know, tied into this idea of whether the United States was in um, international decline and domestic decline, I would argue both. And that led to the outcome of 2016. And so much of that, right, is being in, in part driven by China. It's being driven by the American 1%, by the Western 1%, and is being taken advantage of by the CCP in terms of this relationship, which goes back to, you know, the outsourcing that I, I viewed while I was there, the outsourcing and the manufacturing that was going on. So much of these factories, so many of these investments are all going into China Uh, And when you look at it and the business owners there and the representatives of these companies, the vice presidents, the people who get sent over as, hey, you're going to be our China office manager. You're going to be our China VP our Shanghai VP or Guangzhou VP, whichever it is. You know, it's it's all a cost benefit to the company kind of situation. But it didn't seem like anybody was paying attention to the effect it was having on international relations or paying attention to the effect it was having on the United States of shipping that bulk of the American backbone of manufacturing to China and shipping that all of those jobs to China and to um, away from, you know, the United States, particularly the Midwest and in the Northeast where I'm from, from the Philadelphia area originally. And so, you know, learning about all that and, and seeing it, you know, I said, why this this just doesn't seem it never it never sat right with me. Something seemed wrong about it. So, you know, it's very interesting to me that when we think about all of these issues that we're talking about today on a regular basis 
on that, that these are, you know, these are commonplace issues. This is what I was thinking about, you know, uh, 12 years ago, 11 years ago, 10 years ago, and, and wanting to do something about now, when you were in China, uh, in the late two thousands working, uh, with the, you know, different businesses and, and traveling around, what made you realize that the Chinese communist party was a threat? I mean, because you were working with businesses that wanted to work with the Chinese communist party. Right. Right. So if you're and this this is something that I don't think a lot of people in the United States understand, at least writ large, that if you're doing business in China, right, you have to deal with the CCP. There's no way around it. Right. Every company has party members in it. Every deal maker um, has to get blessed off by the CCP at some point. There has to be whether it's provincial, whether it's regional, whether it's national. You all need the blessing. You need someone. Right. You need someone with guanxi. Right. You need someone with and that's that's, you know, it's it's so um, hard for a lot of Westerners to understand the concept of guanxi, which it doesn't doesn't just mean you're well connected. Right. You need to have good guanxi as well. Right. You need to have like a positive. Um, so it's like your your reputation and your connections and your your power and your 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 influence all combined. And of course, that's going to come up with party connections. That's all part of increasing it. This is the way that CCP has kind of injected themselves as the locus of success in China, right? So yes, they have these sort of market forces, but the only pathways to achieving that final success or achieving um, your degree of, you know, raising yourself up or a company you're building, whatever it is you're doing, or in the military, if you're scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, right? Right. You have to go through the party process at some point. And that when someone's kind of like on their way up on their as a rising star, someone from the party will reach out to you or you'll be asked to go to a meeting and then you're offered membership. And, you know, there's this huge process to get in. And it's it's seen as an honorific, right? It's seen as uh, you are now part of the one percent. Right. That's that's the way to look at the CCP. Right. That's your right of entry. And that's that's if you don't have like a, you know, a family background or or one of these other sort of like endemic pathways in. And so coming from my background, just, you know, I'm I'm Polish, um, you know, born in the U.S. My family's Polish. So, you know, I've, I've always had a very, very dark view of communism, but in many ways, a very clear view of communism and knowing what it did to Poland and what it did to Eastern Europe and understanding that this is a problem that and a force that should not be trifled with and they have a completely different set of values than than we would in the west they don't believe in civil rights they don't believe in human rights they don't believe in the value of human life they don't believe in uh the same set of morals that um you know individual morality as we would in the west and so when you start asking those types of questions I give you an example. Actually, I give you a good example. This is a, a story I tell sometimes. So we had in Shanghai. They have they, they call it the Shanghai Planning Museum, right? And what's the Shanghai Planning Museum? Well, the Shanghai Planning Museum is the municipal. It's almost like a like a part think tank, part nerve center, part party apparatus building. It's right down from the Shanghai Museum, where when you go there and it's not open to the public, right? You have to be invited in. That is where the city planners of Shanghai decide what they are going to do with the city next. They decide what deals are going to happen, what infrastructure is going to be built, um, what, uh, 
uh, what new, you know, the, the Shanghai World Expo was coming in. So any big exhibits or events that are going on it all, it all runs through there. So we would bring over U.S. politicians sometimes and whether it be um, senators, congressmen on a, a CODEL congressional delegation or whether it be just their staff or a lot of a lot of state officials so state governors would come by and we'd always take them through this place, the Shanghai Planning Center. And as they would go through, they'd look at all these amazing, expansive mega projects. Right. And and of course, China's known for its mega projects. Right. Three Gorges Dam is like the biggest one that, they, that they're well known for. But they would say, wow, look at these. Look at look at what you can do. And you can just just move this and you set this up. And man, now you've got maglevs here and you've got this nuclear plant. You just set this up and you set all of these different things up and boom, and it happens. And it's and it's incredible. And it's intoxicating to them. And it was like they were getting drunk on the amount of power that they realized that the CCP had because you don't have to worry about zoning restrictions or eminent domain. There's no eminent domain. The party owns everything, right? There's no, you don't have to worry about the, getting funding from the bank. If this thing's approved, then boom, you've got all the funding you need. You don't need to worry about environmental considerations. You don't need to worry about, and if people are living in the area, well, <laughs> get rid of them, right? They don't want the maglev there. Well, then they're not going to be there anymore. Oh, these are historic Shurkuman buildings, right? These old, um, you know, very culturally significant um, living quarters that people have lived in in Shanghai for hundreds of years. Knock them down. Get them out of the way. We need progress, right? And you, Michael Bloomberg is a great example of that, right? Because he's sort of one of the most prominent members of what I would call the technocratic, you know, Acela corridor class in the United States where it is intoxicating to them when they look at that system and they say, look, it's all top down. We don't need to worry about these annoyances anymore. We don't need to worry about these little people and their little problems. We have big ideas, big innovation, big plans. And with this model, with this, and this is what Charlie Munger is talking about, right? I, I know exactly what Charlie Munger is talking about when he says that. That's the model that he wants because he wishes, they all wish, that they could have that much power in the United States, in the West, to get done whatever it is that their their scope of their dreams is. And so when I started reflecting back on realizing that this is the situation that's going on, that this is they want the Chinese model. They want the CCP model. They're not coming over and talking about how great it is to have democracy and civil rights. You, you never even have that discussion, right? So I would see them come through and they're getting introduced to it. They're getting a taste of it. And so when Elon Musk, great example of this, Elon Musk tweets just a few nights ago as Xi Jinping is giving his, you know, uh, saber rattling speech there in, in the Mao Garb at the Tiananmen Gate, that Elon Musk says, Wow, if people could just visit China and see what they're doing, particularly in terms of infrastructure. Well, they would they would have their eyes opened the same way I did. I'm like, Elon, I bet I know exactly how you got your eyes opened when you were in Shanghai, when you were in China. It's the exact same thing. It's basically like a twisted version of SimCity. It is kind of like SimCity. Yeah, you could that's a great way of putting it and it's and it's like, you know, Whoever played a game of SimCity that it didn't end in some some disaster or another, right? Yeah, it was the same idea. You don't have to worry about the Sims, like if you tear down a building or put a nuclear power plant somewhere. That's why I love SimCity. The, the power was intoxicating. I just destroyed everything and it was fine. I could rebuild in my own image. 
<laughs> Beautiful. Right. I had I had Poso City, and then here's the the Poso <laughs> Castle, Poso Palace. All right, we're gonna put that there. This here. Now, what about the people who live on Main Street? I don't like Main Street anymore. Get rid of it. Make it gone. Now it's Poso Place, right? You know, it's yeah, it's it's like Sim City. It's exactly like Sim City, actually. Wow, I can't wait to have that glorious system here in the U.S. Imagine a world where you don't own anything. The thing is, when we get that system in the U.S., we aren't going to be the ones at the keyboard and the controls, right? People like Charlie Munger, people like Elon Musk, they're going to be uh, Michael Bloomberg, Pete Buttigieg. You know, I, thought, I love Pete Buttigieg, right? You're going to be the Secretary of Transportation, right? Well, what do you know about that? You're the mayor of, you know, some town in uh in indiana what do you what do you know about uh transportation you know i've, I've always been a fan of transportation <laughs> <laughs> it, and it doesn't matter right he is a man of the new system he is a technocrat that is exactly the type of person we are talking about where they are not in it they're not in it for so and and then of course wokeness and not to get too off uh, topic on that but wokeness gives them this amazing example of kind of deflecting from talking about anything they're doing. You know, let's not talk about where Elon Musk is getting his cobalt right from uh, the blood mines of Africa and VW and where all the materials that they're they're sourcing are and how they're getting it from the strip mining in Africa um, for these electric cars. No, 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 no. It's wokeness, right? Wait, 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 wait. Well, what, what about those those child minds that you guys are using? Excuse me. Is that your white privilege talking? And then they boom, they can just deflect right away from it. And they can say you're part of the problem that you need to get with the solution. And they have this ready made for them where they can talk about and, you know, it's Pride Month and they can all put up the flag and talk about that all day long to completely distract you from what's actually going on behind the scenes. And meanwhile, companies like Nike is lobbying or Apple lobbying against Uyghur slave labor bills. Right. Because it's part of their supply chain and they don't well, want and to Disney, talk And about Disney that. is thanking them. Disney, thank you so much to the Xinjiang Party Committee for allowing us to shoot the film Mulan here in, you know, here just, just what is it, you know, miles away from the concentration camps. But fortunately, we were able to set it up in such a way that we angled our cameras so that you wouldn't be able to see uh, the million people who were locked up. Well, so I think this, this is an important point. I, I think you you and I sort of have a lot of similarities in that, like we saw years ago, the the really negative influence the Chinese Communist Party was having on the United States. But a lot of people didn't see that. But now with the coronavirus, things have changed a little bit. And I want to talk about a um, uh, a story you guys just covered on uh, on human events that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was uh, conducting experiments on transgenic mice, which is a way of saying human-animal chimeras, trying to get uh, bat coronaviruses to be more infectious to humans. And they were doing this in 2019. Do you think they were successful? Well, so here's the thing, right, is that those, there, there's a variety of experiments. And we've been digging into the Wuhan Institute of Virology very closely. We've been looking at this. And you know, I'm not one of those guys who is like, oh, Dr. Fauci, I don't listen to anything he says. I know I listen to everything he says, and I listen very, very closely to the things he says. And I remember those early task force meetings where we were told very specifically at those briefings that this thing, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is the official name for it, um, 
We all called it Wuhan coronavirus, by the way, at the beginning. Even in Chinese state-run media. Yeah, that uh, everyone was calling it that, right? And he said the reason that it was so, um, that the there was the R naught number, right? The reason that it was so infectious that it spread so quickly was that it had a spike protein that fit almost perfectly with the human ACE2 receptors, which are found in human lungs. And I said, wow, that's that's okay. That's very interesting. So this, this spike protein fits directly in. Humans got it. Understood. Wrote it down. Mental note. Then when you look at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and you start looking at these programs that they were doing and this research they were running, some of it, of course, we now later find out was funded by the NIH, but not all of it through these, you know, EcoHealth and Peter Doshak and all these sort of front companies that they run. And you find that they were humanizing the mice to have these ACE2 receptors in their lungs because they found that when they, and this is even prior to 2019, this is going back to 2015. You, you even see some of this experimentation going on all as far back as 2007, right? And these are go to the gain of function, right? These are gain of function experiments that they said, well, it wasn't working out because mice lungs don't have the same ACE2 receptors as humans. So what do we need to do? We need to humanize the mice, right? So they, they come up with this process of humanizing the mice to give them these ACE2 receptors. Then they're going through like a, a roulette wheel of these different coronaviruses that they all glean from this, this cave outside of Quinming um, in, in Yunnan province, which is about a thousand miles away from, from Wuhan for people who don't know the geography. Um, that's, that's all the way down by the Vietnamese Laos border. That's, that's practically Southwest Asia. Um, this we're now talking about is, or Southeast Asia. Um, this now is Wuhan is like kind of like central Eastern, uh, in terms of China. It is, it is interior, but you see the very same phrases all over again. Spike proteins of the coronaviruses are now fitting because we've humanized the mice to have the ACE2 receptors. And so to me, this just looking at it as someone who, you know, you know, I, I don't have a biology background, but I have an investigation background. And I say, well, what's going on with that? So you call up the experts and you call up epidemiologists. And I've spoken to uh, microbiologists and toxicologists about this as well. And they said, you know, a lot of the things that we're looking at definitely seem to be this. Is, these are clearly mutated viruses that have come out here um, in these cases. These are instances where we're definitely talking about gain of function experiments and and I said, just look, you know, is it possible that this could have led to what the, you know, the the initial um, creation of SARS-CoV-2? I'm not saying did it right. I'm not saying that's 100 percent what happened. But just looking at the data here, can you, you know, somebody who has the background in this? And they said, yeah, it could. We, we, we But what we would need is the actual data, the actual data on this stuff. It's scrubbed. You can't find it. The NIH database where they had, had initially put up the some of the genomic sequences for the early patients of COVID-19 from Wuhan, at least the ones that they were uh, they had publicly acknowledged. China pulled them back out of the NIH database and the NIH let them be under this international agreement that they had had. So going back to the sort of the marriage of the one percent with the CCP. So there's an international agreement that. If they can just ask for their data back, we'll delete it, give them their data back and say, hey, no, no harm, no foul, no copies of it as far as we know. And 
the NIH won't even tell us, they won't even tell us who specifically requested it back. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know who did, but, uh, or at least have a list, a pretty short list of who it was. They won't even tell us who made the request unless we file a Freedom of Information Act with the NIH, right? So our own government won't tell us who in China it was that took out this data because they're worried that we might find out what was actually going on. So you, you look at who's protecting who in these situations and they realize that they have a problem. And you can see this in so many of those emails from Dr. Fauci that came out where he's asking these very same questions that I was asking just in terms of a guy who has the investigation background. I was a Navy intelligence officer uh, looking into this, following, you know, following the trail where it leads to the Wuhan Institute, right? And even to a story that we did, and we have this by way of WikiLeaks, where there was a cable that came out from the desk of Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, rightfully, by the way, saying uh, she's about to have a meeting with the French and it's on bioweapons. And she said, this is all the way back in 2009, but she says, hey, I hear France is about to st uh, start working with China to start setting up a BSL-4 laboratory in Wuhan. That is something that we know that uh, bioweapons could come out of those facilities. And we'd like to know, are you sure that you've given them uh, full procedures for containment? Do you have a way of surveillance? What are the different methods that are being used there to ensure the safety of this thing? So you've even got the State Department under Hillary Clinton all the way back in 2009 asking the very same question about what exactly is being created in that lab. What I find so fascinating about the story is that it's like we just believed everything that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was saying, that Shi Jinli was saying. It was like, you know, she did, Scientific American did that kind of puff piece with her uh, last year. During, and they were just like, there's that part where she was like, oh, well, I was worried it could have come from my lab. And then I searched all my records and I was so relieved it didn't come from my lab. And then they were kind of just like, well, OK, then, you know, well, have you have you heard, seen her latest? Um, I think it's with uh, she did an interview with NBC. So, OK, just last week. And I keep meaning um, I just haven't uh, uh, personally had time to do this. I keep meaning to clip this and put this out. So she does an interview where NBC goes back and they get some kind of access. And she does this interview with them and she goes, well, there's a lot of myths that are being spread on the internet about my work, and they say that we were up to no good, and blah, blah, blah. She actually says that. She says, blah, 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 you know, but really, we're not doing anything like that. So they can take all their blah, 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 and, you know, she just kind of downplays it like that. So, so it's even she is going back and becoming a little bit more hardline on this, where you're right, in that initial interview, which I wish she, uh, she probably wishes that she didn't give, where she said, yeah, I went back and was checking the records, I was so worried. Now she's saying, oh, that's just a bunch of internet talk, that's a bunch of blah, blah, blah. No, it's not a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And if it were, you wouldn't have a problem showing us the data and this study, which we mentioned, but we didn't get into, that we've discovered was listed that was supposed to have started in 2019, January of 2019. There was a study up by a researcher named Hu Bun. And what we found is we couldn't even find any information about the study. We only found the funding approval for it that came down a year prior in 2018. So we found this document on an archive site from the Chinese Medical, uh, Medical Journal of Science that said, 
we are going to be conducting this experiment with transgenic mice, the pathogenicity of two new bat coronaviruses that was supposed to start in January of 2019. That's on the archive site, and it was supposed to run all the way through December of 2021. You try to find any information about that study, any information about this guy, Huban, or what was going on from it, it's wiped. It is wiped clean. It is scrubbed. The Wuhan Institute has taken it down. You ask them about it. They won't talk to you about it. And now that Peter Daszak has rightfully uh, been called out on his lies and his cover-ups uh, in conjunction with The Lancet and everything else, I think people know that story by now, they've, they've, they're now rolling out this new doctor, this Australian doctor, uh, Dr. Daniel Anderson, and she's coming out saying, well, you know, I, I worked in the lab and it was very safe and I, I didn't even see anybody who is sick. Well, okay. It's, it's a big lab, Danielle. We, we know there's a lot of people there. We know that. In, and again, in, in many of these instances, you probably weren't privy to everything that was going on there because we know there were ties to the PLA. We know there was classified information, classified experiments that were going on there. And so that is why we are going to keep digging. So the bottom line is if you, you know, sure, Jung Lee, if if you don't have any worry about what was going on there, then then show us the data, right? Show us the data so we can move on and go back to looking at bats or go back to looking for this um this intermittent species, whatever it might be, maybe a pangolin, maybe it's a civet, like the original SARS, you know, we don't know. But the fact that they won't let you have any access to the data and the fact that they're scrubbing all of this information, they're taking down information about these studies, especially the one that started in January of 2019 that Human Events has reported on, those are the questions that get people wondering what's really going on there. I think it might just be because there's nothing questionable in the data that shows anything bad that they were doing. So why should we in the West waste our time going through it? And that makes sense why they would have scrubbed it, right? It's just to help us not waste our time. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, they, they just scrubbed us because they don't want us, they don't want us worrying about it. They want to yeah. put us at ease. You know, they just, just, oh, I'm alive. <laughs> you know, you have so many worry, other things to be worried about, you know. And, uh, you know, and, and, and also from a higher level, I'd just like to say thank you to Xi Jinping for, you know, providing us with so many access points to this information about the pandemic when it came out, you know, certainly letting us know as soon as there was a problem, he let the world know. And, and of course, he shut down the international travel from China. Because, oh, wait, no, that's not what happened, is it? No, in fact, they shut down domestic travel, but they allowed international travel to continue. Uh, and in fact, they knew we're starting to get indications that they may have known there was a problem as far back as October of 2019 when they held the world military games in Wuhan, where you had Western, Canadian, American uh, military athletes that were traveling to Wuhan to participate in these. It's kind of like a mini Olympics for the military uh, that was going on. And you look back at some of those pictures and you're talking now to some of the athletes that were coming back from that. And they're saying, yeah, we all had respiratory infections. In fact, um, I haven't I haven't run this completely to ground yet, but I actually had let's put this. So I had a couple of sources reach out to human events recently who were on a tour. They were on, you know, those um, those riverboat tours they do in China. Um, they're just American tourists who happened to be in Wuhan in October of 2019 who had come back. And they said, look, we are convinced we are con we all were sick. 
every single one of us came back sick on this trip and we are convinced that that this is what this was either covid-19 or one of the earlier you know one of the early variants of this thing because we had all the symptoms it was we were specifically in wuhan um and they, and they said that when they were in wuhan in 2019 october this is very interesting to me they said it was like a ghost town all the way huh. back in october so it's almost like sort of like a like quasi lockdowns had already begun in October before they'd even alerted the world about it. Hmm. It's interesting that you're talking about October because one of the things that the that Shijinji, they had lied about was they claimed that they took down a database at the Wuhan Institute of Virology after the pandemic had started because they were getting harassed by people who were looking into you know, whether it was a lab leak and they were like, we we took this down, you know, in March or whatever. And it turned out that they actually took that database down in September right. of 2019. Right. Hmm. Interesting timeline that's coming out. Right. And so that that's another just a very key, you know, something you learn in the Intel community that when you're digging through one of these things that you know, people, there, there's so many different avenues and so many different methods of, you know, you know, they say, go down, the, you know, go down this rabbit hole, go down that rabbit hole, and you can always be doing that. But laying everything out on a timeline is critical to understanding. Because again, right, to your point, right, they took down, if they took down that database in September of 19, um, you know, and, and presumably, right, you know, this study that we're talking about, about the transgenic mice and the pathogenicity, of the two bat coronaviruses would have been included in that database if it was something that they were putting raw data into. So, you know, maybe they've got international partners that are looking at this and trying to, you know, just follow the, the study as it's going along. You know, why take that down so early on? So you mentioned timelines being important. So let me get this straight. I want to kind of lay it out as I understand it from you. In 2018, the Wuhan Institute of Virology got funding to do gain-of-function research on transgenic mice uh, to infect these sort of humanized lung cells with bat coronaviruses to try to adapt those spike proteins to uh, these humanized lungs. Uh, and that experimentation started in 2019 in January, well, we know right? we know from the document that we've seen that it was scheduled to start in 19. And I want to be clear about this. This is not the earlier experiments that were being funded by the NIH. This was wholly funded, as far as we can tell, from the Chinese Academy of Science. So this is obviously it's building off of those previous experiments, but this was not one of the ones, right, that was being tied into uh, EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak and Fauci and all of these other things. This was a, a solely done um, venture from China. And is the Chinese Academy of Sciences, are they connected to the People's Liberation Army? Well, I mean, to an extent, everything in China is connected. That's why I always kind of laugh when uh, they say, oh, this this lab might have ties to the this party or this military. So it's all it's all connected. Right. So, yes, though, on on paper, we do see a, a strong connection with the Chinese Academy of Science and many questions about Chinese um, China's PLA bioweapons program, right? You, you're seeing them work hand in hand on multiple programs in terms of this. Uh, you've seen it in the past and intelligence, you know, in, in the best assessments that we've seen, we've also considered that to be the way they run those programs, right? You're just, you're running. And, and it's the same way that classified uh, programs are run in the United States, by the way, that you're not 
creating a wholly separate military entity for these things, right? You're you're working hand in hand with them. You're just you're bringing the expertise uh, of the scientists over. You're giving them, you know, a security clearance, and then you're setting it all up so it might be. For example, a certain, you know, a certain wing of the Wuhan Institute or a certain room or even just certain studies that are going on that nobody else in the facility knows about if they don't have clearance or if they don't have the read in, uh, you know, need to know, I guess you would say, for that specific program. OK, so just to get this, the timeline straight here. So in 2018, funding was approved to do this kind of research on back coronaviruses. Supposedly, it was scheduled to begin in early 2019. September of 2019, the Wuhan Institute of Virology took a bunch of related data uh, off of their database. October 2019, a bunch of foreigners traveling in China got sick with uh, mysterious respiratory disease. Uh, December 2019, uh, we started to see uh, these cases being reported by whistleblowing doctors in China. Then like mid-January 2020, after many, many weeks of, of this mysterious virus going around China, the Chinese Communist Party acknowledges that it's there, first says there's no human-to-human transmission, then later acknowledges, okay, well, maybe there is human-to-human transmission. Meanwhile, they're, they're allowing Chinese people to travel abroad from Wuhan to other countries with basically no uh, exit restrictions. Uh, and then basically by February and March, a whole bunch of Western countries are getting infected on a massive scale. Is that basically what what we're seeing? hundred percent. and and you remember, and if you look back, by the way, so I'm talking about what's going on in Wuhan and saying we, we need to shut down, we need to shut this down. And then so they do it. I think the twenty fifth is when uh, when because Trump is still president then, so Trump does it. You have a huge response, by the way, from, the Chinese diplomatic corps, uh, denying it, uh, opposing it. How dare you? Don't do this. Um, you also have, by the way, where in the country of Italy, where Italy, we know, got hit very hard with this thing early on. And they were going very strongly on Italy, even as Italy was already experiencing these massive first waves of this thing. And I think, quite frankly, I really don't think that you see Western governments with the exception of Trump's order back in January, you really don't see Western governments getting on board with the severity of this thing until Italy hits, right? So Italy goes bad, and that's when you start seeing these, you know, really strong reactions from U.S. governments um, and and European governments talking about, and that's where you start seeing the mask mandates. That's when lockdowns, of course, are initiated. Very very draconian lockdowns very early on. It's it's Italy was that was that flashpoint, I believe. Now, you, you bring up the draconian lockdowns, the kind of lockdowns that happened in Italy and in the United States over the past you know, year, almost year and a half now, they're unprecedented, right? The America, even during the, the 1918 flu pandemic, America never had this kind of lockdown, right? We, haven't, we didn't have it during the 60s when there was a very bad and deadly flu. To what do you attribute this sort of fundamental shift in policy for how to handle a deadly pandemic uh, in terms of implementing these big lockdowns? Well, I, I, I think that's pretty clear. And, and Majid Nawaz has, has written about this quite extensively that this at, um, in the UK, that th they were copying what China was doing. 
they said, well, it looks like China's locking down people. So let's just do the exact same thing. Whatever the CCP prescribes is what we're going to do. Right. There's no. <laughs> right. And and early on. Right. I'm, I'm not one of those people who says, um, you know, that I, I think that they wanted the you know, that this, this was like a plan or something like that. No, what I what I think it is, is, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about the intoxicating influence of that amount of authoritarian power that the CCP wields and seeing that they also saw that because of the health crisis, this gave them the opportunity to really flex those authoritarian muscles. So they said, just do it. Just do whatever the CCP is doing, whatever they're doing in Wuhan, just do it. Now, of course, um, I don't think there's anywhere in the West where you saw lockdowns that were quite as bad as what the CCP was doing uh, in terms of locking people into their homes and bolting them down. But you certainly see the severity of these lockdowns. And in many cases, even once we started learning more about how this virus works and started learning more about the actual data of how people are infected and who it hits harder and uh, the different effects that it has, that you you start learning about more of the efficacy of, of lockdowns. And there yet there's still people in the West who will cling to saying, nope, everybody has to lock down. That's the only way. Uh, you know, we shouldn't just focus on sick people. We shouldn't just focus on, you know, the elderly or people who have uh, pre-existing conditions, you know, uh, immunocompromised or immunodeficient people. No, it's everyone has to be locked down. That's the only way to be safe. The New York Times was really pushing that message. China had it right. Right. And so we're told again and again that this is the way to do things, to follow the CCP model. They got it right. We got it wrong. We need to do whatever they did. And that's what we're told. Even though the CCP clearly is not super transparent about anything. Yeah, the question, is, and I think really the jury is still out on what exactly happened in Wuhan, not only with um, the initial outbreak of the virus, but also in terms of the response, in terms of, you know, it, it seems it seems very clear, by the way, that China had some type of treatment for this thing far earlier than they were letting on to the rest of the world. And I think that's definitely something that needs to be investigated and something that needs to be studied very, very clearly, because, you know, the rest of the world was was conducting lockdowns. You know, we were keeping people separate, et cetera, et cetera. And yet um, Wuhan specifically seems to be able to go back to their um, normal levels of of work and the normal levels of activity far earlier than than other countries. And so the question is either number one, did they have a treatment early on? And I suspect they did. And then number two, did they also realize that lockdowns weren't necessarily what they needed in terms of this? They just needed to focus on specific, you know, specific people who were sick early on. Well, there's a lot of questions that have come out from this. Uh, one I want to bring up is People were encouraged to go to Wuhan and were getting sick in, what do we say, September, October 2019. We know for a fact that even as it was beginning to spread around the world, uh, China was still allowing international travel from Wuhan. And not just allowing, demanding, demanding. What do you mean by demanding? Well, that's what I'm talking about with this, uh, uh, their diplomatic efforts, right? So this huge diplomatic pushback whenever the U.S. and Italy are talking about shutting down travel. Demanding not to stop it, in a way. Right, demanding not to stop yeah. it. They're demanding, you will accept Chinese air, aircraft. So what was going on? So, you know, and this is very much just my assessment kind of mode, but 
the way I look at things and, and look at high level Politburo kind of strategic thinking on this is it really seems like the Politburo took a look at this situation when they finally found out what was happening, when they realized they weren't able to cover up what was happening in Wuhan, when they realized that this pandemic was, and by the way, this would, uh, would work for regardless if it was lab leak or not, uh, when they realized that they had a big problem that they were going to have to show the world, you really, it really starts to look as though they said to themselves, well, should this be a China problem or should this be a world problem? Because if it's a China problem, it's going to call, right, our mandate of heaven into question. It's going to call our dynastic power as the CCP, as the latest dynasty of China, in into question as to whether or not we are the legitimate rulers, the legitimate heirs to power here in Beijing and Zhongnanhai. But if it becomes a world problem and if it just becomes, oh, one of those things, you know, we live on this planet and uh, we've been, you know, fighting viruses as a, as a human species for so long, then we can deflect blame away from ourselves. And in terms of, you know, certainly the economic uh, problems that came ar- that arose because of the lockdowns and the economic issues, of course, that arose from uh, just from the pandemic itself directly. And they said, why should why should we bear the brunt of these things? Why should China be the only country that has to be hit by this? Well, if it actually works in our favor, if we can then not necessarily prevent it or not do everything we can to prevent the spread from the rest of the world, but also find ways so that we can actually spin this to work in our favor by saying, look how good we dealt with this thing versus the way the rest of the world has dealt with this thing. And that has been the New York Times narrative. That is certainly the narrative in the 1% in the West today. That's the Charlie Munger narrative. He mentions it in, in that CNBC interview, right? That's He's saying exactly what Xi Jinping wants him to say, whether he knows it or not, by the way, right? He is, uh, he is playing off the exact same sheet of music that they're playing off of in Beijing. And so you know, you really do have to wonder what some of those strategic conversations that were being had or at the highest levels were and why they made the decisions that they made. Going back to the timeline we're looking at, which doesn't seem to be making much sense if their real goal was just shutting down a worldwide pandemic. It was interesting because in early February, I remember seeing Chinese state-run media coming up with the spin that was Basically, China is saving the rest of the world by right. keeping the virus contained inside China. And this is before the U.S. got a lot of cases or I think Italy had already been hit. But generally, it wasn't that bad where it had spread to a lot of countries. And their propaganda line at the time was, we are sacrifi- we're nobly sacrificing ourselves for the betterment of the world. Yeah, I remember that. I wonder if those articles are still online. Right. So you can see how sort of the early propaganda lines, the early responses to this thing don't line up with what was actually going on at the time. And, you know, for myself, uh, looking at it in terms of just the air travel, right, I said, well, you, you haven't stopped any flights at all. And you could look into the data and you would see flights going from China from all, all sorts of cities in China um, on those international airports. They never stopped. They never once stopped until other countries banned them and other countries put on these travel restrictions. It was not something that was led by the PRC ever. 
One of the things you mentioned earlier in the podcast is about the Chinese Communist Party's uh, historical narrative and the rewriting of history. And so what it seems like this, the Chinese regime is trying to do now is rewrite the history of COVID-19. And we'll see it for a few more years, probably a few a few further changes to the narrative. And then they will sort of look back on it as, you know, whatever whatever their new narrative becomes, obviously it will be something that's not their fault. And they're going to push this new revised historical narrative on everybody else to try to like prevent uh, a kind of true reflection uh, or, you know, prevent scientists and journalists from ever really having the full picture of what happened. Oh, you see this already early on where when I'm talking about uh, Sher Zheng Li and uh, Dr. Daniel Anderson or Peter Daszak or any of these people who are, inst- who are associated with the Wuhan Institute, they say, well, we caused this. We were the ones who are saving the world. We were saving all of humanity. That's why we did all these experiments. That's why we're conducting it. And you can go back, by the way, and look at the rationale for why are we conducting gain of function? Dr. Fauci himself uh, has a quote talking about this saying, well, the benefit outweighs the risk because we will then get the next jump. We will be ahead of the next pandemic. We are the ones who will be in charge, who will have the playbook on the shelf to be ready when the next pandemic hits. The pandemic hit, guys, and I don't remember the Wuhan Institute or the NIH or Peter Daszak or Daniel Anderson or any of these people stepping forward and say, hey, we've seen something like this before. We've seen this in the lab. Here's a treatment for it. Here's how to help. Here's how it affected uh, humanized mice, right? You never once saw anyone talking about this stuff or admitting that all of this was going on until we were going through their documents that they tried to hide and brought up all of these questions. We wouldn't even know that they were conducting these experiments because they themselves were not forthcoming about it in the early days of it. So they've been trying to puff themselves up and paint them as the saviors of humanity and um, the the defenders of the human race against this, 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 this vile virus. And that's the way Xi Jinping is positioning himself. That's the way you're now seeing Chinese academics positions the party. Uh, there was this professor from Fudan University who gave a speech back in April, you know, talking about this. He's saying, well, you know, you have to look at U.S. decline and all the way from 9-11 to the financial crisis to the coronavirus uh, crisis. You know, the U.S. has just been taken down and taken down and taken down. And suddenly, you know, and it's and it's it's very sad. But of course, China is now able here to, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to be number one. We, we, we would hate to have to do that. We don't want to knock the U.S. down. But it seems that the U.S. is declining all by itself. And so China must now assume the mantle, assume this role of the global hegemon, assume this role of protecting international trade, protecting international affairs. We don't want to, by the way. We just have to because of the vacuum that's left by the United States. So you're already starting to see this narrative be formed. And the CCP are masters of information warfare, narrative warfare. They're the absolute progenitors. Chairman Mao was a master of this. Their propagandists are key. I mean, you can't even talk about the Great Leap Forward. It's just the, the three years of, of natural disasters, right? Every every textbook and every history book in China, it's three years of natural disasters. It's very bad. Three years of natural disasters over and over and over. They're repeating these mantras that 
And again, because of censorship and we've seen the rise of censorship, you know, I, I don't even think you need to say it right. You know, social media companies censor in the West the exact same way that they were taught to censor by the Chinese government. Right. It's the exact same thing. Any narrative that doesn't comport any piece of information that doesn't fit with whatever the, uh, you know, the affirmed story is that's censored, that's wiped out, that's taken down. Well, so we're almost about out of time, but I think there's, to wrap this up, there's a very important um, theme that's been kind of running throughout this podcast, the idea of uh, how the 1% in the West sort of works with the Chinese Communist Party. You know, after the coronavirus, we have seen globally uh, a huge downshift in public opinion about the Chinese Communist Party. It seems like most of the people of countries around the world are increasingly cynical about the Chinese Communist Party. What can they do to shift the power away from the sort of 1% that still wants to continue to engage with China, the Black Rocks of the world still saying, now's the time to invest in Chinese bonds? Look, you know, that that's where I, I say to people like th this, is, this did not start overnight. It's not going to be unwound overnight. And there, there is no, uh, you know, kind of magic bullet that gets you there. It is going to have to be a return, number one, to truth, to rationalism and to understanding that you cannot go along with these globalized systems when you have bad actors like the CCP that are involved. And I, I want to be very clear that people need to understand it's not all of China, right? It's the 1% of China the same way it's the 1% of the West, right? We're talking about the 1%, the 99% of China, the Lao Baixing, the people that I met when I was over there, they're good people. They're normal people. They want to live their lives. They want to have jobs. They want to uh, want their kids to succeed. They want their kids to go to great schools. Just like everybody, they wake up, they go to work, right? They have uh, commutes, they have whatever they have, just like everybody else, everywhere on the planet. The difference is in terms of what's going on with our ruling elites and their ruling elites. And so for Americans, I would say this is why the, the ballot box is so important, but it's also why those economic decisions are so important, right? So uh, understanding where your finances are going. If you have a 401k, if you have an IRA that's tied up in this stuff, you need to start looking at that. And you just start asking, is this what I want? Is this where I want my finances? Um, if you are supporting somebody who's running for office, uh, you really need to start digging in on these questions, right? You don't have to be a China super hawk uh, or someone who's you know completely anti-Wall Street and all this different stuff to just have them start asking these basic questions of what's going on in terms of the U.S. overseas markets, why are we allowing these different trade deals to go on? Why are we allowing these things to happen? And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the term made in America has to mean something again, not just this assembled in America crap, not just this, oh, I'm so sorry that, uh, um, you know, but part of it was it was thought of in America, but it was made somewhere else. No. Make that mean something again, even if it means that something's going to, you know, a product is going to cost a little bit more money, but it was able to help a guy in Detroit and all the net benefits that come of that throughout the United States in terms of bringing these manufacturing bases and not even talk about manufacturing bases. Let's talk about the chip base, right? The fact that microprocessors and semiconductors are not made in the United States anymore. This is a national strategic emergency. It is an absolute 
crisis. Why do you think the China, uh, the PRC wants to take Taiwan back so much? Because they control 60% of the chip manufacturers in the entire world. And then you've got South Korea up with about another 15%. So boom, right there, 75% of microchips, processors, semiconductors that are being made in the world are right there. And believe me, the CCP absolutely understands that. This is a national strategic issue. Those are strategic assets. We need to start thinking in terms of what do we need as a country should something, uh, God forbid, one of these military crises uh, arise. And I'm not, by the way, someone who thinks that uh, you know war is imminent with, with China. Um, I certainly see the lines drawn. I certainly see uh, the threat, I don't think it's necessarily imminent only because they are trying, along with our 1%, to turn the, and if you look at this in terms of the millennials and Zoomers and people that are coming up, they want you to be a renter class. They want you to be consumers. They don't want you owning homes. They don't want you owning, you know, having stable jobs. They want you to be gig workers. Uh, who are renting, living out of apartment buildings or living out of homes that you don't own, so you're not generating wealth, that you're just consuming products again and again, you're uh, posting whatever they tell you, there's the latest fad on Instagram and social media, and you're changing your profile picture to include whatever, you know, whatever the new thing is, they want you watching TikTok, you are their customer, and they want you in that mode. And they want to be the ones profiting off of you. They want you to be serfs. They want you to be peasants. And so uh, Karl Marx, um, for many reasons, was wrong, but he was certainly wrong in terms of this, because it looks like history isn't a cycle of progress, that in this case, you've got a country that, like China that went Marxist. You've got a country like America that went capitalist and, and freedom and embracing civil rights and human liberty. And now both of them are reverting back into what? A model of feudalism. This is neo-feudalism that we're seeing. And that's, and it's not like a, it's not like a Republican Democrat thing. That's the real force you have to fight against. Well, thanks a lot for joining us today, Jack. For anyone watching who would like to follow you or where, where should they go? Uh, if you want more of this and and certainly more of those investigations that we're breaking down, which is are definitely going to happen on a on a daily basis in many cases, some of you know some of, some take longer than others, but humanevents.com is where I'm always up on Twitter. It's at Jack Posobiec, J C K P O S I O B I E C N. If you want the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, you can go to mypillow.com and use promo code POSO. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll put a link to all of those below. And right was... in, right in, right in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, do, do you want to? Do, do, do you do you want to plug a book? Those uh, those uh, those my, those pillows made in America, right in right in Minnesota. Yeah, as far as books, um, do have a new book out on uh, on Antifa. Believe it or not, it's a compendium of just you know all my uh, last five years of investigation into Antifa, my experiences with them, infiltrating them, going into their meetings and going into their events and their. Uh, public conflagrations like Chaz out there. You know, you focus on the, the rise of communism in China and throughout the world, and you've got to focus on Antifa as a symptom of that. So that's up, antifabook.com, if people are interested in checking that one out. And we'll have to get you on our other show, America Uncovered, to talk about that someday. Absolutely. Jack, it's been great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, guys. Well, you know, I got to say, after that interview, I'm, I've, I'm feeling really hopeful. Yeah, yeah. why? 
It's because, you know, no matter what differences we may have, well, different languages, culture, ideology, the 1% of each country will always find ways to work together. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Doesn't fill you with hope, Shelley? No, hope's not the exact word I'd use. Oh, what is the exact word? Let's just move on. Okay. And this podcast is sponsored by Daily Peanut. I know you like following the news. And Daily Peanut gives you interesting news stories to read every day. They're fast, timely, and entertaining. Just subscribe to their email newsletter. It's free, and you can read it on your phone, computer, or tablet. It's a great way to filter out the noise and learn more about the world news that matters. Join more than 250,000 other readers. Click the link in the description below to get Daily Peanut for free. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Jung. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And we'll talk to you next time.